0: Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area. Call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join
1: Dr. Carl Broglie. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you're a first-time listener, for the next hour we'll be taking questions that you may have from God's word or a challenge you're facing in your life that you'd like biblical counsel on, or some challenge in your ministry that you need direction. If we can help, by God's grace, we will. All you need to do is pick up the phone locally. Again, the number is 525-1859, 525-1859, area code 843. For our internet listeners, you can reach us at our toll-free number if you prefer, and that number is 877, the call letters, WAGP 980. So the 877 number is WAGP 980. Or if you prefer, you can uh, email us here directly into the studio and your question will pop up on the screen. And the email address is TBL for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP Net. We always give live callers preference, and um, some call, and they don't want to go on the air live, and they're just happy to dictate their questions, so we're happy to receive it however you'd like to give it today. Let's go ahead and get started, Rick. Where are we today? Well,
0: we had a few questions we didn't get to last week, okay. so um, this was actually referring to a message you gave a couple of weeks ago. You were teaching on how there will be many Jews who will come to Christ, and this person would like to know will those jews be ones who've previously heard the gospel and rejected it or will it be the first time they hear the gospel
1: that's a good question uh, i don't think that god has a, a double standard so to speak when it relates to uh, his people clearly uh in second thessalonians chapter two paul speaks of a coming event he says let no one in any way deceive you For it, the return of Christ will not come, or actually for it, referring to the day of the Lord, that begins with the rapture of the church and goes all the way through the millennium, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, such that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. So Paul is speaking of a future day. The church at Thessalonica thought that, well, maybe uh, we um, didn't understand what Paul taught in the rapture, and we are in the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord mimics a biblical day. It's not a 24-hour day. It's a long-progressed period of time that begins with the Great Tribulation, Uh, it Starts dark, it gets bright when Jesus comes back at the second coming. Uh, for a millennium, He will reign upon the earth, and at the end of the millennium, it will get dark again. As those people during the millennium, tribulation saints who had an opportunity to have children during the millennium, some of their children did not respond in faith, and and the devil who's been loosed uh, at the end of that thousand years will have an opportunity to tempt them, and many will go against the Christ. Here's the point. God doesn't have two standards. He has the same standard for all of his people as it relates to tribulation saints, whether it relates to Jews, Gentiles, whatever it might be. And so Paul makes it very clear that they were not in that day. But when that day comes, it will be a horrible day. And so he says, and then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end at the appearance of his coming. That is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders. And with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish. And so he says, for this reason, God will send on them a deluding influence that they may not believe that they may believe what is false in order to be judged because they did not receive the truth. So, Very plainly, if a person hears the gospel in clarity and power, and they do nothing with the gospel, once the day of the Lord begins, I don't care who they are, Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter. God is very plain that they will not believe during the time of the great tribulation period. They will be a part of that great multitude of people. Whom God judges with a deluding influence that they might believe what is false, they will indeed embrace the Antichrist. Now, with that said, most Jewish people that I meet today have never heard the gospel. Uh, They've never had a simple presentation of the claims of Christ. And of course, we know that one of the functions of uh, the Great Tribulation, called in the Old Testament the time of Jacob's trouble, is for the conversion of the Jewish people. And so the uh, the tide will change. It won't be Gentiles, as in our day, witnessing to the world, Jew and Gentile alike. But during the Great Tribulation period, it will be Jewish people, 144,000 evangelists, according to Revelation 7, who will be witnessing to the rest of the world. And Paul makes a statement in Romans 11 that all Israel will be saved. And of course, he's, he's speaking of national Israel and he 's using the term "all" in a qualitative sense, if as we studied recently in Romans eleven and sometimes the Bible does use it in that respect, and context demands that we uh, define it accordingly, um, but he is making a point that most of Israel, uh, not just national Israel but uh, true Israel, those who have had circumcision of the heart. Uh, Jewish believers, ethnically descended from Abraham, but nonetheless believers in Jesus as Lord, most of Israel will be saved. Uh, In the truest sense, you could say all of Israel will be saved, and that the all there represents those who are truly born-again Jews. And so in that sense, yes, they'll all be delivered. Uh, But it's clear that there is a coming future day that the Old Testament prophets spoke of and that Paul uniquely describes in Romans 11, where there will be a great ingathering of the Jewish people, where they will come to acknowledge that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Messiah of Israel. So that day is still in front of us. But if a Jew today—and I've sat down with some Jews who have walked through the plan of salvation— all of their questions have been answered, and they have not responded like many Gentiles. And those people will experience the same diluting influence of the Antichrist in that coming day. Good question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. I think we have a live caller who's waiting.
0: We do indeed. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line.
2: Yes, I called. I had a two-part question, but now I have another question. It's like a follow-up question to what you were just talking about.
1: All right, go and ahead.
2: After I ask you, I want to hang up and listen to everything you're saying.
1: That'd be fine. But
2: my follow-up question was: um, Will the raptured believers that come back during the millennium will they live entirely the thousand years, and only the non-believers that were born during the tribulation? I mean, during the millennium, die.
1: Yes. Um, yes. My, okay.
2: Uh, my second, totally different question, my original question was, are Jehovah Witnesses Christians, and if they come to your door, do you recommend to talk to
3: them?
1: Okay, good good question. Let me see if I can respond to both of them. Let me take the first half. Uh, those people who are raptured uh, before the Great Tribulation period, who will come back with Christ, first he comes for his saints, and he comes back with his saints, will they die during the time of the millennium, or is that just tribulation saints who die? By the way, the Bible is really clear. There's not a single verse that will say, oh, the Bible teaches a pre-tribulational rapture, just like there's not one single verse that you can pull the whole, say, doctrine of the Trinity over. But when you put a number of verses together, systematically look at the full revelation that God has given on the subject, then you systematically come to some conclusions. And the same is true of the rapture. When you think of the catching up of the church, it is true that in the technical sense, the word rapture in the English Bible is not found. But Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, for we shall all be caught up. The Greek word is harpazo. Um, In the fourth century Latin translation that uh, Jerome did, it's rapto. And so we get our word in English as rapture. I don't care what you call it, the catching up of the church, the rapture of the church. That's inconsequential. Uh, That's just a good theological term taken from the Latin that capsulizes the biblical truth. For instance, in, in many English Bibles, they will add chapter titles And there's a chapter title in Luke 2 called the Magnificat. That's a Latin term. It means song of praise. It's not Greek. It's not Hebrew. It's not Aramaic. It's a Latin term, and it's one that is stuck. Uh, Like the word Trinity, not a biblical term, but certainly a biblical doctrine. And so the Bible, when you interpret it plainly, argues for a pre-tribulational rapture. It has to be. Some people put the catching up of Christ at the end of the great tribulation. They say, we'll we'll be here for the great tribulation. Christ will catch us up, transform us, and then we'll come back to the earth to rule and reign for him. The problem with that is while the devil is bound for a thousand years at the end of the thousand years, the Bible is clear that the devil is loosed and then he's able to tempt the nations of the world to go against God's Messiah. Well, who can he tempt if we're all in resurrected bodies. So when you look at this whole scenario of events, the church is first caught up during the time of the Great Tribulation. There are people who come and acknowledge Jesus as Lord. And Jesus says in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 that unless those days had been cut short, no one would have survived. But for the sake of the elect, those tribulation saints who have acknowledged Jesus as Lord... Those days will be cut short. And so he comes back at the end of the seven years. One will be taken, one will be left. People will be taken away in judgment. Others will be left to rule and reign here with the Lord. During the time of the millennium, there are some prophecies that Isaiah spoke of that have never been fulfilled in all of human history. The wolf will lay down with the lamb. The baby will play next to the cobra's nest and not be harmed there'll be a certain um, harmony in the creation of the world and people will live for long, prolonged periods of time such that if someone only lived to be a hundred, the Bible said they would be considered to be cursed. And so much like during the days before the great flood, that people lived six, seven, eight, nine hundred 900 years, 969 years was the oldest man who ever lived. And uh, the scripture teaches that people will live for a prolonged period of times. During that time, those tribulation saints will be able to continue to have children. Uh, They'll be able to marry, and uh, they'll be able to see not only their children, but their grandchildren, their great-grandchildren. And if you live for a thousand years, you probably see a lot of generations Just because I am a believer doesn't automatically make my children a believer. I became a child of God through faith in Christ. While God has children, he has no grandchildren. And so the children of tribulation saints will have to respond. You say, but Jesus will literally be here on the earth. Why would they not respond? I mean, they've got visible proof before their eyes of God in human flesh. Listen, they had visible proof before of God in human flesh. When Jesus walked on the earth and people didn't respond then, they saw miracles done right before their own eyes, but they didn't respond. So there will be a number of people who will remain in unbelief during the time of the great tribulation, and the, uh, during the time of the millennium, and at the end of the millennium, Satan will be loosed. So if, uh, if the rapture of the church happens at the end of the tribulation, when we are in resurrected bodies, we're like the angels, we neither marry nor are given in marriage. And so some people, therefore, say, well, there is no millennium. They spiritualize it like those typically in the Reformed faith. There's no literal thousand-year reign upon the earth. You cannot erase those scriptures. There's dozens of passages in the Old Testament that speak of a literal future kingdom where Messiah will sit on David's throne. No one has sat on on David's throne since the time of the Gentiles began under Nebuchadnezzar there's been no king in Israel and even after they came back after the deportation to Babylon they came back not to set up a throne but to establish a temple there was no one sitting on David's throne and the next one who will sit on David's throne will be the the messiah himself the lord jesus christ and so you can't spiritualize those passages now the length of the millennium is not something revealed in the old testament the fact that there is a kingdom um, it is revealed in the old testament but the length of that kingdom namely a millennium a thousand years is a new testament revelation that god has given to us so it demands a pre-tribulational rapture. So if we're in resurrected bodies, we'll be like the angels. We, we don't marry um, and we will also uh, not die because we'll have a resurrected body like Christ. The second half of your question, are Jehovah's Witness Christians? Absolutely not. They are not believers. They deny the deity of Christ. They deny the doctrine of of the Trinity. They deny the virgin birth of Christ. Should you Let them into your home. I would be really weary of most Christians doing that because um, God, you know, in in the truest sense, when he speaks of opening your home in the context, it's for hospitality because in the day when... Uh, John wrote his short epistles where he deals with this subject in 2nd and 3rd John. There were virtually no hotels, and the few hotels that were there were dirty and unsafe and usually filled with prostitutes. And so believers would open their homes to other believers, and John warns against opening your home to a false teacher, because then you're underwriting his ministry by showing him uh, hospitality. You're strengthening him for the work of the devil. Uh, but again, I would just caution any new believer, especially, of opening your home to a Jehovah's Witness because it usually won't accomplish much for you. And, uh, you know, new believers are like magnets for the cults. Uh, the devil knows where there are new believers. And while he cannot rob a person of their eternal salvation, he can certainly slow them down. And if he can, he will. And he'll send a Jehovah's Witness to your door if you're either a new believer or a young believer in that though you've been Christian, a believer for years, you may not have matured. And the devil wants to throw you off center. So even this caller who called to even ask our Jehovah's Witnesses Christians, um, it tells me that maybe you haven't had a lot of doctrinal instruction. And I'm glad you're asking, it. and it's obvious you have a heart for Christ and you're asking important questions, but I would say don't, don't let them into your home. You might want to listen to my message on Second John. You know, I, I never heard a message in my whole life on Second John, uh, but I preached the whole book of Second John, and it's online, and it's a neglected little book in the New Testament, but I think it will be helpful to you. Let's go to the next question. I think we have a caller waiting. We do indeed.
0: Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line.
3: Hey, thanks. Um, I have a question about re- rewards, and uh, I guess I would take a scenario of uh, a person that didn't do very good as a Christian on earth. They definitely were saved in earth and say they make it to heaven um, versus uh, someone that has uh, just been outstanding living for the Lord and, and doing work for the Lord. And uh, when it comes time for rewards, um I just don't understand uh, what's going to happen and how it's going to play out as far as the person that, you know, if you want to say got in by the skin of their teeth, that don't make a lot of sense, but just, 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 you know, we can say that, um, how are they going to look towards the person that has all these great rewards? Um, heaven's a perfect place. Is there going to be a feeling in this person that is like, well, I could have done better, um. Are they going to be sorry that they didn't do better? That's important to me. I've been thinking about it, and I have no answer.
1: It's a good question. Um, Maybe Rick can look it up for me. We did a series called Back to Basics, and the Back to Basics series is a 45-week discipleship course that we offer every Sunday at Community Bible Church. It never ends, and it's designed so that a person can jump in any week they want If this were week 25, they could go weeks 25 to 45 and one to 24 and get the whole thing. So you don't have to wait for it to start over. And so weekly, uh, virtually every week, someone comes to Christ, sometimes several people um, at our church. And so we immediately put them into the discovery class. And we've taken uh, a number of those handouts and we've created an opportunity for people to study online. And so the Back to Basics series here in the left column, about eight down there, Rick, um, you'll see is a, is the Discovery class online. And one of those messages is dealing with developing an eternal perspective. Um, and so if you will listen to that, you will get a far more in-depth answer than I can give you in a couple of minutes because uh, it's a couple of sessions uh, that I did, uh, and it's videotaped. You can live stream it, or you can listen to it uh, on an audio file. And we now have Search the Scriptures app. And I have learned more and more that people listen more through their phone app than they do through the computer, because they can just download for free whatever message they want to hear, and put their air plugs in, be driving down the street and listening to the whole message. But to answer you at least briefly... There is coming a day of evaluation that Christians will give, not to see if they go into heaven, but how they go into heaven. And so the Bible says that all of us must stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, when we come to uh, Romans fourteen, we will explore this in depth. We're starting Romans twelve in our exposition of Romans, but one of the central passages that deals with this coming judgment for Christians is Romans fourteen twelve. So then each of us must give an account of ourselves to God. Um, the Bible teaches that you could take a person's service for Christ and put them into one of two categories gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. And a day will come, Paul says, when each man's work will become evident, the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. So God will take all of the service that you've done. And sometimes we tend to uh, put certain kinds of things that we do as spiritual. Everything we do is spiritual. If you're a mother today and you're cleaning your home and you're doing it filled with the spirit, uh, that will be rewarded in heaven. If you are on a job site and you're hammering boards to build a home, whether you are doing that unto Christ or whether you're doing it just for the eye service of men, God will look at that. He will look at everything you've done. And certainly if our mind has been renewed and we're a growing Christian, there'll be a lot of spiritual, uh, activities we will be doing, like sharing Christ, like trying to build up new Christians, like using our spiritual gifts in the local assembly. All of those things will be looked at. And so some people too may even do good things, but they do it in their own effort. And this is why the message I preached last Sunday, I think is so important. Uh, how to really be moment by moment, filled with the spirit and what prevents us from being filled with the spirit, because what God ultimately rewards is what he does through us. That's the amazing thing of it. He gives us commands. And if we learn to yield to the spirit, then God allows us to fulfill those commands, to walk in the works that he, pref- uh, per- that he prepared beforehand, Ephesians 2.10, for us to walk in. And then in eternity, he rewards us for it. Uh, but some people walk in the energy of the flesh, and when their works are tested with fire, they're of the wood, hay, and stubble type, and they're immediately consumed. Look, I'd rather have a handful of diamonds than a truckload of hay at the judgment seat of Christ, because hay is consumed in a flash. Uh, Gold, silver, and precious stones, when fire is put to them, at best, they're only purified. And so, the day will show it. If any man's work which he has built upon it, upon the foundation who is Christ and the context remains, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so is through fire." So he will suffer loss. There'll be a loss, not of salvation. That's not what the context is dealing with, but there will be a loss of reward. And that's a very real and sobering kind of thing. Um, It's in heaven that God wipes away our final tears. But will we be going through all of eternity, looking at people and kicking ourselves and say, I wish I had done more? I don't think so. Um, I once heard uh, one of my professors in seminary who's now in heaven, Dr. Dwight Pentecost. um, We're discussing this one day, and he said, Carl, heaven is like light bulbs. I said, what do you mean, Dr. Pentecost? He said, well, there's 30-watt light bulbs, there's 60-watt light bulbs, and there's 100-watt light bulbs. Um, Some um, burn brighter than others, all burn to their full capacity and are satisfied in the respect that they are fulfilling their capacity. And so Daniel describes us like luminaries in heaven uh, that shine with different glories and different brightness. So again, there are implications for the rewards. A lot of those implications God has kept silent on. The motivation for laying up treasure in heaven is not the treasure in itself, but the motivation is the command of God to do that. Uh, Why do I obey any command of God? Well, I love him because he first loved me. And this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. So God has commanded us not to think just temporarily, but eternally. And in eternity, he will reward us for it. That's the real short answer. Uh, Rick, what session is that in the Back to Basics series uh, let me take a quick look here. It is. If you go online and search the scriptures.org, and you'll see a number of different messages that are preached. And one sermon series is called Back to Basics, and it's called Developing an Eternal Perspective. It's, it's sessions 18, 19, and 20. So there are three one hour messages on this subject. And I answered it in five minutes. So if you really want to do an in-depth study, that's what I would point you to. All right, let's go to the next question.
0: Indeed, we've got another uh, online person. So let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line.
2: Good morning. I'm going to try to stay composed while I ask this question. Um, I was raised as a child in the church, uh, and I, I know my mother was saved, but as a teenager I fell away and didn't really come back to have a relationship with the Lord until I was in my 40s. Um, so my son really wasn't raised in the church. He was he was kind of raised in the church. I, I went to a UCC church. I taught Sunday school. I thought I knew the Lord, but I know now that I did not. Anyway, um, he is not saved now, and he's very resistant. So um, after the rapture, even though he's kind of heard it, But he really hasn't heard it. If he's not saved by them, will he have a chance? And I know it won't matter to me then because I know there's no more tears, but it does matter now to understand.
1: Well, I appreciate your heart in asking that question. And, you know, you were in an apostate denomination. The UCC has been, United Church of Christ, has been an apostate denomination for four decades Uh, They, for over four decades, have denied the um, inerrancy and infallibility of the Bible, the uniqueness of Christ. Uh, They were the first uh, so-called Protestant denomination in the United States to affirm homosexual marriage. And by the way, it was at UCC Church that our president was involved in up there in Chicago. And again, sometimes people are in those denominations because they don't know any better. So, you know, I understand the way our president thinks because he was brought up in a liberal apostate church and a part of one for some years there in the Chicago area that does not represent the Lord Jesus Christ. So we should pray for him and have compassion in our hearts towards him. There are some people who are in apostate religion because they've heard the truth and they've rejected it. I don't know in reference to our president, if that's his situation. There are other people who are in those churches because that's all they've known. And many times when they hear the truth, they end up leaving um, and becoming true believers. My guess is, is that your son has not heard the gospel in clarity and in power. And if that's his situation, you know, again, what he's rejected was not so much Christianity, but a poor caricature of it. And so, you know, you you look back and you say, well, you know, I brought him to church, but, you know, I, I wasn't saved myself. Well, so you couldn't really bring him up in the discipline and knowledge of the Lord, and you got the byproduct of it. Not only the byproduct of not knowing Christ yourself, but you got the byproduct of being a part of a, a liberal denomination, that is not Christ-exalting by any stretch of the imagination, and it hasn't been for decades. And very often, you see, this kind of blows people away, because sometimes when they go to these churches, they see the veneer that looks very Christian, but because they're not discerning, they're unable to appraise all things like the spiritually mature believer is, according to 1 Corinthians 2.15, because they lack that discernment, they think it's Christian. And they think, oh, well, you know, they use the same language very often of historic Christianity. Of course, because that's the way the devil works. He doesn't typically come with, you know, a a pitchfork and horns coming out of his head. He comes as an angel of light. Uh, And and if he does, Paul says, so don't his servants, his ministers, his preachers, his pastors. So they look Christian, they talk Christian, but they're not. And so, you know, your your son walked away from an apostate faith. I'm glad he did, uh, and that he didn't walk away from the true faith. And so you continue to pray for him. Take responsibility with him, and Just, and I'm sure you probably have, to say, you know, son, you may not understand all this right now, but the church that we were raised in— really didn 't believe the Bible, the denomination that we were a part of did not ascribe to the Bible as god 's infallible word, even when you were being raised, um, it denied that the Bible was fully inspired. Again, they use the terminology, but they redefine it. yeah, the UCC pastor will say the bible 's inspired, but when you push comes to the shove, what do you mean inspired? Well, you know Shakespeare was inspired too. Uh, so, But it's not a unique inspiration from God, or it's inspired, but partially, because there were fallen, sinful men who wrote it. And so they would say that those fallen, sinful foibles bled through the pages of Scripture. Oh, no, no, no. God, the Holy Spirit, he inspired his word, yes, through sinful men, but sinful men who wrote infallibly. Why? Because they were moved along by God, the Holy Spirit. So son, I didn't bring you to a church that really represented God well and I just want you to know that because I want you to know that what you've left is not really true Christianity but I'm I'm just praying for you. I didn't have eyes to see it then but I'm praying for you that there'll come a time when you'll you'll want to rethink through some of these things. So Again, um, there might be little open doors of opportunity that you can ask God to give you. Paul prayed for that, asked the Colossians to pray for him in that same way in Colossians 4, that God would give an open door of opportunity. And sometimes it's a starting point. There was a man in our church who recently came up to me. He's a professor at a university in another part of the state, and he was down here on vacation some years ago, and I had the privilege to lead him to Christ and he uh, he has a vacation home here in the area and he comes here in the summer times and and of course um Chris said to me, he said, Pastor, I just I'm so excited. I want you to know my father finally came to Christ. I said, Well what was the stopping point? Well the stopping point was how do I know the Bible's really true? And so he said I said to him, Well, Dad, can I at least read you this book? The guy's on his deathbed with weeks to live how to prove the Bible is true. And so he read that to him word for word as his father listened. And then he ended up wanting to hear the gospel. So you want to find out, well, what is it? What's the blockage in your son's life that's keeping him from genuine faith and pray for that. So again, God alone knows the heart. God cares about your son. God's not in the business of wanting people to perish. He wishes that none should perish and you just keep praying for him and living for Christ and loving him, and God can turn things around. Sometimes it's like turning a light switch on, and it just blows me away sometimes, because you see these people who are hateful and resistant, and it's like God turned a light switch on, and everything began to change. Let's go to the next question, Rick. I appreciate that.
0: 525-1859, toll free 877-924-7980. And If you had a question today or would like to re-listen to today's message, you can do so at wagp.net and click on the Bible line and look at the archived copies. We'll get it on in a matter of just a couple of hours. Um, We did have a question come in. A listener would like your opinion on a church where people come for prayer and healing. Is this the power of God or the power of Satan?
1: Well, it depends on the church, like anything else. You know, the Bible says we do not have because we do not ask. And sometimes uh, evangelical Christians have shied away from even asking God for healing, physical healing, or it might be emotional or spiritual or whatever it might be, because they've seen such abuses in all these shysters who are out there. Uh, not to really represent Christ well, but to line their wallet with money. I mean, who wants to be sick? That message sells that you can be healed. And when there's the faith healer there, many times with all of his phony miracles that are planted out there, uh, to when they get caught, they say, well, we're just trying to build people's faith. Uh, we're not doing an evil thing. We're doing a, bad, we're doing a good thing. Um, you know, they're in it for the money. So balance is everything. A ministry that solely and exclusively uh, emphasizes a healing ministry to the exclusion of teaching the whole doctrine of Scripture is a ministry obviously out of balance. And so, again, typically ministries where this is their sole pointed emphasis there's an underlining motivation that's really not biblically oriented. So I don't want to say that not knowing the specifics of the ministry that you have in mind, that it's demonic, because it may not be. Uh, Sometimes, you know, Christians just fail to ask the Lord, and sometimes God does miracles. He does beyond anything we could ask or think. Uh, That's not to say that God does not use medicine. But our hope should not be in medicine. Our hope should be in the great physician, the Lord himself. When King Asa sought the physicians to the exclusion of seeking God, God was displeased. But when King Hezekiah was ill, he sought God. And then God used a medical means as dictated through his servant Isaiah to bring about physical healing. So God can use medical means. God told Timothy not to drink water exclusively. He probably was on some kind of Nazarite vow, and as a pastor, especially one who traveled as much as he did, where much of the water could easily make you sick, they would add a little wine to the water that would kill the bacteria and make it safe to drink, and Timothy maybe didn't even want to do that. And so for medicinal reasons, not using strong drink, raw wine, fermented, but wine mixed with water, uh, Paul was giving Timothy instruction. All medicines, ultimately, whether it's herbal or, or you know, man-made, it comes from things that God has created. You can't make something out of nothing. So it's things that God has created on the earth. Now, many times there are pharmaceutical companies that realize, sometimes even through tribal medicine, where they've seen these tribes in the Amazon and stuff come up with some cures. And they they say, well, what is it that is in this plant? And they'll do some analysis, and they're able to reproduce it, but not out of nothing, out of things that God has already created. You can't make nothing out of nothing. Only God can do that. So God uses sometimes medical means. And even when we are sick and we're going to the doctor, we should pray and ask God. To intervene and to work and to use that doctor and for him to even do far beyond what the doctor is able to do. Uh, And if God chooses to heal apart from the doctor, which is not typical, but he can, uh, then then he's certainly welcome to do that.
0: All right, very good. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980. And our next person dictated their question, Uh, They'd like to know if you know anything about the series of books called Counterpoints, Bible, and Theology. Had not heard of these authors and want to know if they are biblically sound, and here are some of them. Four Views on Divine Providence, Counterpoints, Bible, and Theology by Dennis Jowers, William Lane Craig, Ron Highfield, Gregory A. Boyd, and Paul Koss helseth along with Stanley N. Gundry, who is the series editor.
1: Well, Gundry is the series editor. editor. It's, it's a series done by Zonderfin and it's really mimicking something that Multnomah Press did years ago. They had like a, a five views on the Return of Christ. Uh, I think they have a four view book on that. Um, and Multnomah did a number of uh, critical concern books where there were good Christian people who maybe differed on doctrinal issues, and they presented them. So there's a whole series in the Zondervan series, like Four Views on Baptism, Different Views on Church Government, uh, Different Views on Divorce, Different Views on Creation and Evolution, Four Views on Hell, and so forth. Uh, Gundry is the general editor. He actually used to teach at Moody. Uh, but was asked to leave the faculty a long time ago because of his egalitarian viewpoints. Uh believe that um, he affirmed his wife, who basically taught that if women want to be pastors, that that's their freedom and they have that opportunity. And, and so, in fact, one of their, one of their books in the series is um, two views on the role of women in the church. And so it unfolds the complementarian view and the egalitarian view. Here's the challenge and the problem potentially with those books. Sometimes if a Christian has a good grounding and is able to read in a very discerning way, then uh, he can maybe understand, well, why is it that, you know, this person takes this particular position? Why do they hold to infant baptism when I was always taught believers or post-conversion baptism? And so you can, you know, think your, your way through that. Um, and that may be helpful, but these series are usually only as good as the authors who are writing them. And so, I, you know, there was a time when Zondervan Press was a trusted press. In my opinion, it is no longer a trusted press. It is no longer a trusted press. They are the ones who put out the NIV, not a problem, good translation of the Bible, not in the truest sense, the most literal, but that was not their goal in the translation board. Uh, They wanted a translation that was a little more readable. They wanted to come out then with the TNIV, today's new international version, which was a gender-neutral Bible. Uh, It was under production. Christian leaders all over the country uh, were up in arms. I myself signed the petition. They backed down and said, we won't produce that translation of the Bible. Um, they, They said that. They promised that to men like james dobson and a number of people over a decade ago they left that meeting lying went spent the next three and a half years producing it and the next thing to the shock of evangelicalism is the tniv came out this gender neutral bible hasn't sold real well uh, because people even egalitarians are a little skeptical of a gender neutral bible so to speak Um, So what they've done very craftily is they've taken, if you use the NIV, New International Version 84, when it came out, um, now when you go to buy a new, new NIV, because your old one is worn out, uh, as of 2011 in paper, you're buying the new NIV. It's called NIV 2010 that came out in computer in 2010 and paper in 2011, And it's a blend between the old NIV and the TNIV. And if you're interested in knowing some of the critical issues and even verses, I taught a course on bibliology on Wednesday nights at Community Bible Church. And one of the sections, I think it's section six, there are seven sections to it. It's about 400 pages of notes in the whole course that our people got who came on Wednesday nights. Uh, and some people take those courses for credit through our Institute of Biblical Studies to work on a Bible certificate. But Section 6, if I remember, is the evaluation of the various English translations. And so I go through the NIV 2010 version and how they've actually altered the text to make it egalitarian, pleasing to people so that, you know, it's not looked like a chauvinistic translation. And so you have more and more in the church people who want to erase gender distinctions. And so even the general editor of this whole series is egalitarian. So that makes me right off suspect to really trust him in whether or not, you know, you will get a good, fair evaluation on some of these topics. Um, So, you know, you can take it a couple of different ways. And now Multnomah Press which has been known as a conservative press. They have sister companies just like Zondervan does too. And sometimes they'll print a book under a sister company. Well, you know, Multnomah has come out on printing a book on why it's okay for a Christian to be gay. You know, this is a conservative evangelical press. Unbelievable that that would happen. Um, they say, well, that's, that's one of our sister companies. They're responsible. That sister company is under them financially connected and otherwise so this is not good but these are the days that we live in let's go to the next question
0: jennifer from mount pleasant would uh, like to know the following she says uh, she and her husband moved to mount pleasant back in january they visited various churches but cannot seem to find a church where god is calling them to become members she was wondering if maybe you knew of any good churches in the area they'd like to stay in the mount pleasant area as they have young children including a baby Um, She would like to be an active member, but one who stays on schedule with her children's school and baby naps. Therefore, driving a far distance at this time is not feasible. She would really love some help with this.
1: Well, probably the strongest church in the Mount Pleasant area would be what's called ECBC, East Cooper Baptist Church. Uh, the pastor 's been there for a long time, uh, thirty plus years. Buster Brown is his name as he 's called he 's a citadel graduate yeah uh, in either case he's um, he 's more reformed in his theology than I am so he he 's a five point calvinist um, and they emphasize that some Sundays maybe more than others, but lay that aside. He has the gospel, They're Bible-believing, and the Christian who wants to grow could certainly grow in that church, and they have a lot of good ministries to God's people. So while I would, you know, differ with him on his hyper-Calvinism, I still would affirm him as a brother in Christ and one who holds to the infallibility of God's Word and is committed to preaching it and trying to win people to the Lord. So I'm grateful to the Lord for that church. You're trying to find a church. You have to find one. This is not optional. You have to dig in somewhere. So, you know, you find the church that is best for you to go to and dig in and become a member. Ultimately, remember, there's no excuse for not being in a local assembly of Christians. You have to be a part. You cannot forsake the assembling together of the brethren. You cannot say, well, we're going to have home church and this is our church. No, that is not a church your Bible study that you go to during the week, that is not a church. What constitutes a church? Well, you might want to listen to uh, our our series on, eschatology, on ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. And we have a whole course on that. And one of the messages is, what is a church? Among other things, it's organized with elders and deacons, and it practices the ordinances of the Lord's Supper and baptism. It's involved in... World missions, uh, there is accountability, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There are certain marks that constitute a local church, not to mention if y- your husband is the so called pastor and you're his congregant along with any children you have, that's not a church. That is not a local church. It doesn't even represent a handful of spiritual gifts that are necessary for the maturation of of the body of christ there are certain gifts that god gives in the church and when they all come together they function like the human body functions together with many different parts and each one is necessary and if there's only one or two gifts there you don't have what's needed to grow and really mature in christ so you you'll be stunted so find the best church you can you say well i went to ecbc well if that's the best one that you can be a part, then join it pray for the pastors. support them and uh, and, be an encouragement. And uh, anyway, um, good question. I appreciate it. Let's go to the next one, Rick.
0: All right. I don't think we've ever had this question. Uh, Our caller heard the answer about rewards in heaven and would like to know if we'll be judged for the candidates for office for whom we voted. Uh, For example, if we knew that this person was or was not a Christian and voted for them uh, regardless.
1: For all the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.10. So if you are a Democrat and you voted for some baby-murdering pro-homosexual candidate because you only vote Democrat, then you voted sinfully. Or if you're a Republican and you voted for some Republican who's in favor of gay marriage— in favor of the murder of little babies and you voted for that Republican because you only vote Republican, then you voted sinfully part of rendering to Caesar, what is Caesar's and to God, what is God's in this Republic where we have a government of the people for the people and by the people is to represent Christ as his ambassador. And you are to do that well and as best you can and prayerfully. So that's not a responsibility. You just kind of blow off that's an, an important responsibility that you take. So, yeah, God looks at everything. He looks at everything we've done. He, he measures every word that we speak, the Bible says. So, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty thorough time of, in, uh, of evaluation.
0: Hmm. All right. Um, our next question comes from Shannon in La Crosse, Wisconsin, who writes, How do all the races come about after the flood since it was just Noah and his family? And she references Genesis 6, 2 Peter 2, Jude 6. Uh, Angels who left their abode and mingled with human women were cast into hell. So are they still doing it as people are still seemingly continuously bad? And so what good was the flood? I guess that's a
1: three-part question. It is, yeah. Uh, A couple ways I might be able to help you and direct you. Uh, Go listen to my Genesis message on Genesis 6. I think I covered the first six or seven verses. Uh, Again, if you can go to searchthescriptures.org, click on Genesis, you'll see I preach 50-some messages all the way through the book of Genesis. Go to Genesis, click on Genesis 6, and you'll see the message first. I think look at that issue dealing with... uh, the B'nai Elohim, the sons of God, cohabitating with the daughters of men. that That's one issue all in and of itself. Where do the races come, which is really the centrality of your question. It has nothing to do with what took place in Genesis 6. Uh, the flood and in, in the severity of it may indeed be a byproduct of what took place in Genesis 6. Satan probably was trying to corrupt the bloodline of humanity in order to... Um, thwart God's plan to bring the Messiah, who must be both God and human. Uh, In either case, the races, only Christians really have a biblical explanation for the races. I say Christians, Christians and Jews as well, who believe in the Word of God. And so when you come to Genesis 10 and 11... Uh, You have the descendants of Noah, and then the uh, Tower of Babel that will follow. And so, yes, there were three families that came off the ark, and they had children, and they had children, and they had children, and there came a time when the people got self-centered and kind of forgot the lessons from the great flood, and they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven, And let us make for ourselves a name, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. And God responded, behold, they are one people, and they have the same language. And this is what they began to do, and now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible. And so God knew the propensity for evil under one single umbrella was far greater than if they were divided. And so God confused the languages. And so what happened? you know, you spoke Hebrew your whole life. I always joke with my friends, you know, when I go to foreign countries, sometimes I will say, well, what, what language do you think we'll speak in heaven? I'll say, well, English. And they'll say, no, you know, Rwandan or Ukrainian or Indian or whatever, probably Hebrew. I don't know. But in either case, God confused the languages. And so if you had spoken English your whole life, of course, English didn't exist then. But if you, for the sake of illustration did, and all of a sudden, uh, you speak uh, Chinese. Uh, you can't communicate with an English uh, w- with someone from another language group. You can only communicate with the language that God now has given you. So who are you going to gravitate to? People in your language group so you can function. And so what began to take place is people begin to marry within their language groups. And when people marry within a certain confines, Science tells us and it affirms really what we find in the biblical account that the races develop. And so there are certain genetic distinctives that begin to form. Uh, we still all go back to our original founder, Adam. We we're all descendants of Adam and that in that sense everyone listening to me were kin. We're related to each other because we all ultimately come from the first human couple. But the races really develop here in Genesis uh, 10 and 11. So what you might want to do is, again, go back to the Genesis series and listen to these two messages that I preach on Genesis 10 and 11 because it will help you to understand the races. And really that whole section begins in 10, and 11 is the explanation of how it all unfolded and how it took place. Good question. Let's go to the next one, Rick.
0: Okay, we've got about two minutes. I'm not sure whether we can cover this all, but if all Revelation past the fourth chapter is future, do you think Satan still has access to the throne of God, accusing us day and night? Or are we to think, as John 12, when Jesus said, now is the ruler of this world cast out, that he was then hurled to earth to persecute Israel and the church?
1: Well, we're, we're about out of time, but let me just briefly review the career of Satan. He started as a holy angel and at one point, wanting to be like God, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, he rebelled against God. And Jesus references that fall in Luke 10. He says, I saw him fall from heaven. So he's become the God of this world. And um, we know that when, uh, as the God of this world, he's the prince over this creation, he has princes who work for him, Daniel 10. Uh, he was disarmed at the cross. And there's coming a day when he will be cast down to the earth. You misquoted the passage from John chapter 12. Uh, It says, now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world shall be cast out. That's a future tense. That has not happened yet. Satan is functioning right now in the heavenly realm. And yes, can still like in Job 1 accuse the brethren, and the Revelation says he accuses us day and night. But he shall be cast down to the earth. When does that happen? It happens during the time of the great tribulation, Revelation chapter twelve. At the end of the tribulation, he'll be bound for a thousand years. At the end of the thousand years, loose for a br- brief period of time, and then cast into the lake of fire for all of eternity. You might want to listen to my series again. It's an Institute of Biblical Study series on angelology. And we did it in two parts, angels for us and angels against us. We're out of time today. A lot of questions we didn't get to, but we're thankful for those of you who have called and hope this has been a help to you. If you're living within a 50-mile radius of Beaufort County and you don't have a church home, I invite you this Sunday to Community Bible Church, two locations in Bluffton and in Beaufort. Have a great day.